Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 59. And this episode is with Tamar Shapiro of MIT. And I would like to point out that before that, she was at Stanford for 15 years. And Tamar works on value theory, which is philosophers speak for ethics and the history of ethics and how these two sort of go together when it comes to questions of human agency and how we reason in practical situations. And this goes hand in hand with her latest book, which is what we talk about for the most part in this conversation. And her book is called Feeling Like It, A Theory of Inclination and Will. And the best way of explaining what this book is about comes from an example that, or a series of examples that Tamar develops and that she refers to as the moment of drama. So if you're anything like me, you really like ice cream and you constantly have cravings for ice cream and say, say you're me and you open your freezer and because you're me, there are 40 pints of ice cream in that freezer and you, you have this urge I, I want ice cream, but you're not committed to act on this urge or this feeling that you're having. And so the question is, in this moment uh, where you don't know what you're going to do, you have this urge, what are these feelings that you're having? Uh, maybe what are your options? And how should we think about this whole situation? And in answering this question or perhaps I should say, in looking at this question, Tamar takes on a Kantian framework. And so so this is what we discuss in the episode. But we also talk about Tamar's experience teaching ethics at two very much STEM-focused schools, uh, Stanford and MIT. We talk about some other aspects of Kant's philosophy, uh, his thoughts on free will, for example, or for instance, uh, we talk about Ayn Rand uh, because she teaches Ayn Rand's philosophy to undergraduates, which was an interesting move that I, I guess I just wouldn't have expected because Ayn Rand isn't typically uh, taught, of, taught or spoken or written much about in the world of analytic philosophy. And then we talk about some other uh, questions, lingering questions I had just about the history of ethics. And one reason this episode is particularly neat and that I'm particularly glad that we had this conversation is in a lot of ways, this episode is about how to live one's life. Uh, what should I do when I open up my freezer and find all this ice cream? And that's a dimension of philosophy that hasn't been so much a part of this show so far, but of course it's an incredibly important dimension of philosophy. Now, okay, the last things I will say is follow me on Twitter, Instagram, all those places. I started a Discord this week, leave a review. All of that stuff is incredibly helpful. And also I just purchased the domain. I am now the proud owner of robinsonsfashionempire.com and 
That is the shirt you're seeing me wearing. It There's a little R and a little P and a heart. And it's the, the first of my first creation of my fashion empire and any proceeds will go to supporting me in this podcast, but please don't feel compelled to buy one if you don't want to. Uh, and also uh, check out Tamar's book on Amazon, Feeling Like It. Now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Tamar. I think it was uh, Patricia Churchland who once said something like she never wanted to study ethics because it always felt like going to church. And that's something that I also always used to think. I don't think that way anymore. Uh, But I'm probably projecting, but I've always found it curious when people decided to specialize in ethics Mm -hmm. right off the bat. I was wondering how you ended up specializing in ethics then. Oh, yeah, that's a good question and an interesting framing of it, Um, because that is not my experience at all. Um, Just autobiographically, I I did a summer program between my junior and senior years of high school at Cornell University, and my teacher ended up being Jennifer Whiting. It was the first class she had ever taught. And she taught um, singers practical ethics. And there were a bunch of issues, abortion and euthanasia, et cetera. So I just got pretty engaged with that. But I actually think the root of it um, came from my family. My mother was a Holocaust refugee. And um, I think I've always been understandably um, really puzzled by the the capacity of human beings to be so good and so unbelievably bad. And I mm-hmm. think uh, just a kind of, I think, a puzzle about evil, about what, what how do we make sense of evil? And um, how, is, how is that humanly possible? And a sense of the stakes. Like, I think the Holocaust background gave me a sense of the stakes. Not that moral philosophy is necessarily going to like convert a Nazi, but uh, but just the sense that there's something really, really important here, really, really weighty, and a matter of life and death. Yeah, that that actually leads into my next thought very well. I mean, this idea of the stakes and the importance in the matter of life and death. Because another philosopher, and I don't remember who I heard say at this time, but it was a moral philosopher. And in an, in an interview, he said he wished he could have done something fun like math or logic, but that moral philosophy just seemed so much more important to him. And does that in any way capture how you feel about moral <laughs> philosophy? Well, I don't that think it's, it's a more trade-off. practical. I don't think it's a trade-off of fun for what's important because when I'm motivated by what's important and I get to still do philosophy, that's, then it's it's fun. The fun okay. is sort of, uh, you know, just solving a finding a philosophical problem that feels both hard and yet sort of tractable. 
um, and getting your teeth into it and, and really trying to get somewhere with it. And I can imagine that there's some people who think, well, um, that's possible in math, but that's not possible in moral philosophy, you know, but I guess that has not been my experience. It's been my experience that you can get your teeth into a problem and enjoy the fun of solving it, even if it's, um, even if it's in moral philosophy. And, mm -hmm. and really, if I were really sacrificing fun for what I think I ought to do, I would be an activist. I don't have the soul of an activist. I don't have the patience for activism. It's not that I don't want to be involved. I make my donations, but I don't, I don't really enjoy, and I, I don't have the soul of someone who's like, out there organizing, say, and trying to make the world actually a better place other than by, say, donating money or, or making some calls sometimes. So if I were really sacrificing for myself, fun for importance, I would be an activist, but I'm not doing that because for me, there's fun in philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I apologize because it feels like I've started off putting ethics and you on the defensive that that was not at all no i enjoy it i enjoy it <laughs> okay. it's fun i mean you might as well be honest and ask these questions because <laughs> other people feel that way there are other people who feel that way too so might as well yeah, mm -hmm. don't worry. well well maybe maybe this falls in that same vein but you teach ethics now at a school that's really known and probably more than anywhere else on earth for its stem research and focus and before that you were here at Stanford for like 15 years, which is also a very strong STEM focused place. And so what, what has that been like? I'm in particular, I'm curious about what it's like to teach MIT undergrads ethics. Yeah. yeah. I was surprised at how similar they were to Stanford undergrads. I, I didn't really sense a whole lot of difference when I came over here. Um, they're analytically, they're very sharp. Um, they're, what I like about them, well, there's a few things I like. One thing I like is I'm teaching people who are probably going to end up making some money and maybe having some power. And if I can get people like that to learn to be a little more reflective about ethics, then that makes me feel like the teaching has some kind of impact. I like that. Mm -hmm. Number two, um, the MIT students, um, they're very analytically sharp. I mean, they, they kind of have to be to get into MIT. Um, they're willing to work hard um, and that, that they, they don't really expect everything they do to be sort of fun while they're doing it. Like they're kind of willing to slog through stuff that might be hard and not so fun because um, they're used to that. Um, and so I admire that in them, but also like any, like any thoughtful people, like they can be encouraged to reflect. And some people who come in are more reflective than others. Um, but I don't find them any more sort of constitutionally unreflective than st say students at Stanford or anywhere else. Um, well, okay. Now, I guess shifting to, to more of your philosophical work. I mean, your recent book, feeling like it, a theory of inclination and will. And this might be a, a too broad of a question to start us off with, but what are inclination and will? And the reason that I ask that question, I mean, everybody, I think, 
probably has some idea of what they are in the vernacular. So when I think of an inclination, I think of it as something like a loose tendency or a desire, but the will is something more forceful or motivated, something that has to do with like adherence or determination. Those are words that come to mind. But then in philosophy, words tend to take on meanings that are quite different from sorry for the cat for the from the vernacular so first yeah. first off what are um inclination and will as you use them yeah yeah and emphasis on uh, as i use them because i spend a lot of the first chapter really trying to um show how carve out the right concepts for the posing the questions i want to ask um the inspiration so In the history of philosophy, when uh, philosophers discuss motivation, they tend to be either what I think of as monists or dualists about motivation. So what I mean is um, uh, uh, monists tend to think about motivation in terms of um, some kind of mental state at the source of it, which often gets called desire. Right. Um, uh, there are certain rationalists who might think that all action is motivated by some capacity that they call reason. Um, so there's both an empiricist version of um, of monism that says that desire is at the basis of all motivation, where that's some kind of passion. And then there's kind of uh, intellectualist tradition that kind of says that no, some sort of intuitive way or intellectual way of seeing things or seeing the good is at the root of all motivation, right? And then there's are these whole, both monists? Yeah, they're both monists. Okay, right? There's just a rationalist version and a and a and a empiricist version. Empiricist exemplified by Hume. But also there in like contemporary belief, desire, uh, uh, motivational accounts of motivation, um, but really like getting its 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 main expression in Hobbes and Hume. Um, the more intellectualist idea, you know, I think characteristically Socrates, perhaps. Um, oh, really? Okay. Going Leibniz. That far back. Leibniz. Um, uh in any case um but then there are those who posit um uh, a dualist motivational psychology at least where there's at least two and this is sort of the socrates of the republic would go in here because he has reason spirit and appetite as contributing to motivation um kant is an exemplar of someone who posits a dualist theory of motivation, right? Where you have reason and inclination, sort of higher and lower faculties in some sense. Um, of contemporary theorists of action, some, many just adhere to kind of a belief desire psychology and posit that desire is the source of all motivation. Some posit something like a will, um, some kind of, uh, uh, in Harry Frankfurt, it's second-order desires, and it's not clear whether those are actually some separate faculty of the will or they're just uh, 
uh, or just sort of further desires. Um, in any case, you get this tension between those who kind of account for motivation all in terms of one kind of mental state or source and those who posit sort of two. So first thing, when I say inclination and will, say I'm trying to understand something in this do in this dualist tradition, this tradition of like separating these two things. Um, but I'm really trying to sort of um, defend the so a version of the dualist picture against the monist picture um, and to show why we need to draw some kind of distinction between a higher and a lower motivational capacity and trying to understand how we're supposed to think about the relation between those. Um, but my target is uh, the monist picture, both in its empiricist and its rationalist forms. So although Kant Kant kind of assumes from the get-go that we can draw a distinction between reason and sensibility or um, will and inclination. Um, at least if you're like teaching the groundwork, you have to just kind of assume and have your students assume that there is such a distinction. Um, but Kant doesn't try to go Obviously, in the first critique, he does a lot of work to show that there's a distinction between reason and understanding on the one hand and sensibility on the other. But in the moral philosophy, he doesn't do a lot of work against the monist. Um, and so that's partly what I'm trying to do, but also trying to get a clearer picture of uh, what kind of dualism is okay, what kind of dualism is sensible, and, and, and how we should think about ourselves if this is a proper account of the, our motivational structure. I don't know if I answered your question. I didn't answer it quite directly. I was more trying to give sort of a bigger picture of why there are two things here. I, I, I see now this, the dichotomy there between the motivational monists and motivational dualists, as you call them, and how there are, are two things here. There's a, a debate that you're entering into, but I'm still not entirely clear on just what is simply in a slogan is the distinction between um, inclination and will. Right, good. So as I draw it, um, I, I draw this distinction, um, number one, um, I draw it, as it's salient to us um, as agents, as we're leading our lives, and when we're leading our lives, as opposed to for the purposes of doing science and explaining phenomena. Um, I'm not trying to do science. I'm not trying to explain why the things that happen happen. I'm not trying to explain anything about the mechanism. Um, I'm trying to explain what we're, I'm trying to carve out a conceptual vocabulary that helps us uh, lead our lives well. And when we're trying to leave our lives well, I think we have to govern ourselves. And what does that mean? We have to govern ourselves. Well, we have a lot of emotions. We have feelings that we don't choose. You know, you might have things you have to do, but you don't always feel like doing them. Mm -hmm. It would be great if we always felt like doing the things we have to do. That would be amazing, but we don't. Um, mm -hmm. But you can 
recognize that you ought to do things and on that basis choose to do them. Um, but you can't choose to feel like doing them, right? I can recognize I ought to eat a healthy salad rather than the French fries, but I can't, and I can on that basis choose to eat the healthy salad, but I can't choose to feel like eating the healthy salad. I can't choose to want in the sense of feeling like it, the, yeah, the healthy salad. Maybe over time I can sort of try to cultivate this, um, uh, this taste, you know, and maybe with a little bit of luck, I'll be able to get to the point where I really feel like having the salad more than I feel like having the French fries. But um, uh, the feeling like it isn't a matter of choice, whereas the doing what you ought to do can be a matter of choice. So yeah. that's sort of the hmm. basic um, distinction. Um, what we ought to do, well, that is what we choose, resolve, commit, will uh, to do versus what we happen to feel like doing. Okay, no that that is really helpful, and I can I mean I can see already today I've had dilemmas involving my <laughs> inclination and will, but there's <laughs> yeah. there's there's something very particular you referred to that as the moment of drama. And I thought that maybe you could explain that and maybe give us an example of, yeah, of yeah. the moment of so drama. The, the book is about how to think about the moment of drama. Um, and uh, um, the moment of drama, as I think about, is when you're feeling like doing something, but you haven't yet decided whether or not to do it, um, or you're having an inclination could be appetitive, it could be aversive. Um, uh, so for example, I mean, typical example, I feel like eating the chocolate cake. I haven't yet decided whether I'm gonna eat the chocolate cake. It's up to me whether I do it or not. Another example, I feel insulted by this person and I feel like striking back. I feel like striking back in anger in some way. Um, telling them off, maybe. Um, but I haven't yet decided whether to do it. Um, uh, often we feel like uh, running away. Like there's something coming up. It's challenging, but it's a little scary. I feel like running away from this challenge. But I haven't decided yet whether or not I'm going to accept this challenge or run away from it. Fight, flight, freeze, right? These are responses to situations. Um, but uh, uh, in the moment of drama, you're having the inclination in the sense of you're in a position to say, I am feeling afraid of this, or I am feeling desire for this. But you have not yet decided whether to act on it or not. And my question is the question of the book is, what am I relating to when I'm in that moment? What sort of thing is this fear? Is this desire? Is this appetite? This feeling like it? Now, obviously, like it's, you know, something physical, something neurological, whatever. From a scientific point of view, I assume there's a fully, fully some kind of satisfying explanation one can give. 
But my point is when I'm trying to lead my life well, how should I think of uh, uh, this, this fear, this desire? Is it me? Is it something outside me? Is it, does it, um, uh, uh, is it responsive to reasons? Is it completely non-rational? Um, it's easy to often analogize feelings to something, some kind of brute force, like a waterfall or a, a storm, right? And so you say, I don't want to get carried away by my feelings. In what sense carried away by your feelings? Oh, in the same sense, you might be carried away by a waterfall. Well, so I explore that analogy in the book and argue, well, it's kind of a not the best analogy if you start thinking about it hard. Now, then there's another view that, well, when I'm having a feeling, it's really just myself taking something to be a reason in a very hasty manner. So I'm taking the sweetness of the cake as a reason to eat it. Um, and uh, and so my, my feeling is really just a, a little intellect kind of deciding on the basis of reasons what to do really quickly. Um, and then, so I have some arguments I give, I give against that sort of view um, in the book. Is that the well. monist view? So those, they're, neither are really monist views in that. Well, so that is a complicated <laughs> question uh, sure. because oftentimes that gets expressed as part of a monist view. Yeah, it oftentimes it gets expressed as part of a fully intellectual uh, monist view where mm -hmm. even feeling, and often the, the traditional way of putting it is um, uh, that feelings are uh, more confused representations of reality or of what's true. Um, and so, uh, you know, feelings are in the same business as intellect. It's just that they do it in a confused and unreliable way. Um, whereas the, the other kind of view would hold that feelings are nothing like intellect and feelings are just sort of brute forces that the intellect then has to cope with in some way. Well, returning though for the moment to... to the views that you are opposing, the monist views. So you mentioned we have the rationalists on one side, and then the intellectualists, Socrates and Leibniz on the other side. How did they sort of view this problem that you're talking about? Um, I mean, they, for, you know, for them, it, it, it's a question of, uh, I mean, they they solve the problem in a certain way. They say what I'm relating to is really the the same part of me that decides what to do um, in light of the good and the true. It's just that my feelings are making those decisions or or having the same kind of response um, really hastily and confusedly and unreliably. Um, but the idea isn't really that I have two motivational sources. Um, it's that I have one motivational source, it's intellect, um, but it sort of gets exercised in two different modes. Now, that when you press on the details, they're going to be um, 
they're going to be different in different cases of rationalism. But uh, 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 and then so and then the so in the book I give um, some constraints that any theory of inclination has to meet and try to argue that the monists, whether empiricist or rationalist, can't really meet those uh, meet those constraints. Um, uh, but oftentimes they don't really pose the question and push it the way I do. I mean, I do think that the um, Aristotle, Plato, and the and Plato of the Republic, who and other later dialogues who who posited um, parts of the soul, um, they think hard about okay. Why do we need to posit these parts of the soul? What are the relations between them? Um, uh, and and so um, uh, and some of the Hellenistic philosophers thought hard about that. The Stoics went in arguably for a kind of monism, um, but then there were others who argued against them for uh, a more multipartite soul. Right. Um, the thing is that a lot of monists don't really argue for it. Um, like they, you asked me how they solve the problem. Part of the thing is they don't really argue for it. They just kind of assume it usually. Um, so I was really trying to bring this debate more to the fore um, in the way that like some of the ancient philosophers, philosophers really debated it, you know, in the time of the Stoics and then those who disagreed with them. Um, they really debated, should we posit multiple motivational sources or not? Um, it's not so much foregrounded today. And for many periods, it, it, it wasn't. And then how ultimately, or what ultimately is the, the new theory of inclinations that you propose in the book? Yeah. So I argue that, um, uh, we have to conceive of our inclinations as um, having their source, well, as exercises of agency within us. There's not the agency of the will. So it's like there's a mind, an agential mind, that's subpersonal and that operates in an instinctive mode, um, in a mode I think of as. Um, uh, animal agency. Um, now that's going to raise a bunch of questions, but uh, mm -hmm. which I have responses to. But the idea is, um, when you're feeling like eating the chocolate cake, your inner animal is seeing and responding to the cake in an instinctive mode, and it's okay. already active. That doesn't mean that you are acting, but it means your inner animal is already seeing and responding not just seeing the cake in a certain way, but also responding. So you feel it in your body when you want something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So your non-voluntary agential capacities, both uh, uh, physical and mental and psychological, are engaged spontaneously, and they are already going for the cake. Mm -hmm. um, so I call it your inner animal, your inner animal. It's a determination of a kind of will, but it's the will of your inner animal. <laughs> and it operates in an instinctive, non-rational mode. And then the rest of you is not there. Before you go on to, 
to the rest of you. I just, I just had a quick question. What what does it mean to say something is subpersonal? I just haven't heard that mm-hmm. that phrase before. Yeah. Um, well, one analogy I have is sort of to your digestive system. So your digestive system is active, independent of your will, right? It, there's stuff it does without you deciding that it's going to do it. Um, but it doesn't have a life of its own to lead. Its life is there for you, right? Your digestive system is for you. Mm-hmm. Your what I think of as your your inner animal, the source of your inclinations. It's also a system that uh, uh, can be active, independent of your will. It can go for things independent of you choosing to go for them. Unlike your digestive system, it's consciously guided. It has its own consciousness. Um, uh, that's part of your consciousness. So the difference is your digestive system doesn't like have its own mind, but Mm -hmm. your inner animal does have its own mind. That's part of your mind. Um, but it's not, um, it, it's, it doesn't have a life of its own to lead. So it's not like you're the rider and it's the horse because a rider and a horse each have their own lives to lead. A horse is a full animal, a full individual, right, with its own life. Um, Your inner animal doesn't have its own life to lead. Its function, like your digestive system, is to contribute to your life. You can't wrong it, right? It's not like it has any kind of rights or something. Um, But but it is a part of you, uh, and it's a part of you that you live with at every moment. And so part of my puzzle is like, whoa, what is it like to be a kind of creature who lives with this active subpersonal part yeah. that's doing stuff every moment? That's a key part of the human condition that I want to understand. No, that that explains subpersonal very well for me. Uh, and I'm sorry for cutting you off, but I'm glad no, that I fine. did. Uh, but then you said you started going on to the rest of the rest of us, the rest mm-hmm. of you of a singular person. So what then, it, how does this tie into the rest of you and your new Right, theory? right. So when you feel like eating the cake, your inner animal is already seeing and responding to the cake. And I, it's already sort of going for the cake. You can feel it in your body. Um, and the rest of you, though, is, is, is not thereby determined. So there, and, and what I mean is just the fact that your inner animal is going for it doesn't mean you as a whole person are acting. You're not acting yet. Your inner animal is acting, um, but but you are just inclined. What What is for your inner animal activity is for you an inclination, an inclination that yeah. you happen to have. And it, um, uh, it's up to you to decide whether what to do in, in that moment, in that moment of, of drama when... Um, so. So first thing I say is in the moment of drama, what you're dealing with is not a rational part of you that's just looking at things in a confused way, nor is it just a brute force like a waterfall or a strong wind or a storm. What you're dealing with is a subpersonal part of you that is seeing and responding to the world through its mind, which is part of your mind. Um, Then the question is, okay, where does that leave me? What do I do with that? Right? How does that give me any guidance about like 
what to do with it. How do I live? Right. Um, so, so the, the, I call the rest of you, your deciding mind, that's your will, your deciding okay. mind. Um, and then, um, then there are further questions about exactly what sort of things can I do with it? Um, uh, you know, my inner animal's activity is not exactly like a proposition. Like if it were a proposition, I could just agree with it or disagree with it. Uh, if it were kind of just a force, like the flow of a river or a waterfall, I could either like let go and go along with it, or I could swim against it. Right. But the movement of my inner animal, what, what are the things I can do with that or to that? So part of what I want is an anatomy of the problem that I face so that I can figure out what counts as solving it or doing well with it. Mm -hmm. And this, I have a, a sort of maybe a sidetracking question, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure. Did you mention Kant when you were talking about the animal self? I think you I, did, but I might just I be... I didn't. No, I okay. didn't. But... Is the animal self related to Kant in some? Um, not directly because, well, yes and no. I find some sources in Kant where he seems to say something along the lines of what would be activity for a, a, a uh, non-rational creature like a, a brute or an animal um, uh, is only inclination for a human being. But he doesn't really develop that idea. I take um, my notion of animal agency, that I take from Chris Korsgaard, who she doesn't use it in the way I do it to um, uh, illuminate inclination. Like that's not the problem she was working on, but she was just working on like animal agency. And so she put forth a certain conception of animal agency. And I thought, oh yeah, I think I can use that to help solve the problem I was thinking about. Um, so it doesn't come directly from Kant. It comes through Chris Korsgaard, <laughs> but you know, she's some kind of blend of Kant and Aristotle, I guess. Um, okay. uh, but there are hints well, of it in Kant. Well, the, the, where I was actually going with this, I didn't have to do with Kant no. so much at all, but it seemed to me, like Freud would be a natural place for you to go or discuss, yeah. but you didn't mention Freud. Right. And this has raises, I mean, a broader question. I don't ever see Freud or rarely see Freud mentioned in analytic philosophy. Yeah. So I wonder if there, if there's a reason that you aren't talking about Freud. That yeah. Yeah. Um, I, so, I mean, what we obviously have in common is, you know, there's a kind of parts of the soul picture going on. And I think to that extent, you know, I, I put myself in the same tradition as, as Freud. Um, the, the reason I don't talk about him directly is that I think he's in a complicated relationship to philosophy because, you know, he takes himself to be doing kind of empirical science, um, but he's also doing something really normative and like trying to free people and get people to live freer, more authentic lives. Um, and I think sometimes 
that shapes the kinds of questions he asks about why we posit parts of the soul and how we think about the relations between them. And so the way he poses questions is not exactly the way I, I want to pose my questions when thinking about it um, um, strictly according to the this methodology that that I try to defend of like, how do we need to think about things in the course of leading our lives for the purpose of leading better lives? Um, and, and Freud sees himself as a scientist. And, and uh, so sometimes he's asking the questions in a different way than I am. Okay. No, that, that makes um, complete sense for me. And something else I'm curious about is you hinted at there being some sort of normative component to your theory, something sure. about what we should do. And are you advocating for a way in which we should ideally be relating to our inclination and will or more generally to our feelings? Yeah, in the end, I am. Um, um, in the end, um, I argue. So I left off at this question of like, OK, now I'm like my inner animal is active and my deciding self is like not thereby determined is still sort of free. And that's where the Kant comes in. My active self is still, <laughs> my deciding self is still sort of free in relation to that activity. Um, yeah. And I argue that there's um, uh, at least um, an intuitive way to gloss what I say is there, there's a slogan in the mindfulness kind of uh, uh mindfulness literature, um, respond, don't react. Um, and the, the sort of normative ideal I put forth is very close to that. So the idea is um, that there's two ways I can relate to my inner animal when I'm having an inclination. One, correspond, one that I call the low road corresponds to something like going along with it, but not like going along with a waterfall, going along with it, meaning um, treating its mind as if it's my whole mind and basically acting on uh, in an instinctive, a mode that's unreflective in the sense of characterized by a kind of instinctive um, way of seeing and responding to the world. So there's a low road that I think the mindfulness um, uh, mindfulness literature calls reacting, being reactive. Um, and then there's a high road um, that in the mindfulness literature is called like responding. Um, what do I call it? Uh, I call it the high road where you um, uh, take the sort of raw more motivational material that your inner animal gives you, which is some kind of like urge to eat the cake or something. And you ask what you can do with it is there a way I can use this motivational material to construct an action that is in line with my values and my goals? Um, can I, can I use this in a helpful manner or not? And in a way that maintains my integrity or not? So I think of our inclinations, they're not wholly bad. They're not wholly good. They're raw material that in the best case you can decide to use in one way or another by saying, oh, okay, I'm gonna, um, I have this impulse to eat the cake. Well, I can make that into, well, what I call a maxim, 
a maxim of action. Okay, I'm going to eat one piece of cake tonight um, at this time in this way for this reason. And this way I'm doing it is in line with my values and my goals and I can do it. But the other, the more reactive way of dealing with it is just sort of cake eat, you know, and you're not really forming a conception of what you're doing and deciding to do it. You are instead just inhabiting your inner animal's mind and acting as if that's your whole mind and letting it determine your choices instead of actually making a choice. Um, and I think we can be reactive when we're impulsive. So sometimes we just impulsively like smoke the cigarette or eat the cake, you know, but I also think we can be reactive over a long amount of time in a calculating way. So, you know, there are people who are, I, don't know, I always think of, you know, uh, characters who are trying to like avenge someone's death or something. Um, you know, people completely possessed by the desire, like in The Princess Bride, to avenge the death of one's father, right? Or mm -hmm. not to mention, uh, 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 yeah, Shakespeare. Um, uh, but you, you can have a long-term plan, right, that is essentially reactive. Like, essentially, you're just following your inner animal, like, uh, kill that guy, kill that guy, kill that guy, avenge my father's death, avenge my father's death. And there, I feel like that that can be reactive as well, even if strategically you're making a elaborate plan about how to do it and planning it out. It can still be inclination driven in a certain way and reactive. So the norm that the ideal I advocate is like be active, not reactive. And I have a voc vocabulary for talking about what it means to be active, not reactive in relation to our inclinations. Are there, just to slightly press back, are there times in which it is not just permissible, but really preferable to be reactive? Yes, but I don't think it's real reactivity. They can look like it. So, for instance, um, you might be improvising at the piano and, like, you want to loosen up, right? You know, like, I'm loosening. I, I, if I'm constantly calculating about every note, like, I'm not, I'm not going to improvise very well at the piano, right? Um, and, and that's a case, though, where I don't think, you know, so you might loosen up, right, and get in the zone. Um, and when you get in the zone, you're not thinking as much and you're doing the activity better because you're not thinking as much. And maybe you're kind of letting your inner animal kind of determine where you go. So I met that's a certain kind of case that might inspire your question. Um, yeah. And I think in those cases, you're not really being reactive. And the reason is you've decided what you're doing. What you're doing is improvising at the piano. And you've decided to let your inner animal play a bigger role for the purpose of better doing what you've decided to do. It's so like you're a predetermined still self-governing through the whole thing. You're not letting your inner animal make the choice about what you're doing. It's just you're allowing it to inform the how, right? You've chosen the what. You're letting it play a bigger role in how you're doing what you've choose, chosen to do. 
But when you're being reactive, you're letting your inner animal play the role of your will um, or sort of be a kind of substitute for your will um, um, in determining what it is you do. Okay. And to to finish up this discussion, there were a couple more things I was curious about. And one of them is just where you would classify this work in the philosophical uh, bestiary, so to speak, because it doesn't clearly strike me as ethics or, uh, I mean, it's clearly not philosophy of math, clearly not nice. philosophy of physics. I mean, so right. where do you, where do you stick it? Right. Um, part of the metaphysics of morals, dude. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, <laughs> I mean, I think sometimes these, some, Sometimes these things, the works like this get called moral psychology. Sometimes they get called philosophy of action. I think okay. those are two kind of adjacent subfields. Sometimes philosophy of mind, but philosophy of mind usually proceeds in a different way. Um, I think these are somewhat arbitrary um, kind of labels um, because I think the real differences are methodological. What I'm doing yeah. is very continuous with a kind of ethics that I've been trained in, um, um, where um, you're doing ethics, um, an ethical theory addressed to the practical point of view. And from the practical point of view, you have to know not just like what to do, but how to think of yourself in the course of deciding what to do and figuring out what to do. Um, so it's continuous with ethics in a certain tradition, a tradition I come from, a kind of Kantian tradition. Um, but I agree, it's kind of at, um, it's at an intersection of philosophy of action, moral psychology, ethics, philosophy of mind. Okay. And you you mentioned very briefly something about methodological concerns and what are the methodological concerns that prevent this question about inclination from being written and thought about in other areas of contemporary philosophy? Like, I mean, you mentioned philosophy of mind maybe or yeah. action or moral psychology. I mean, I think often um, philosophy um, is proceeds from what I think of as, I mean, in Kantian terms, the standpoint of theoretical reason rather than rather than the standpoint of the critical philosophy. I won't go into that, but basically, um, the philosopher adopts a stance towards the world that's that's fairly continuous with the stance of the science, natural scientist and wants to sort of explain phenomena in something like the spirit that a scientist will try to explain phenomena, either that or the philosophy philosopher will just see themselves as analyzing concepts um, and trying to arrive at kind of clear definitions or something, or trying to sort of summarize our practice or something like that. Um, I, um, 
think of what I do as very discontinuous with science. I certainly want it to be compatible with our best science, but I think the kind of question and the way I'm, ask, I'm asking the way I'm asking it, um, it is, is not one where you necessarily carve out concepts that are, they, the concepts I carve out don't have to be useful for the purpose of scientific explanation. So it could be that when we're trying to explain neurologically what happens when we make decisions or neurologically what happens when we feel like doing things, there may be all kinds of concepts we need that are different from concepts of will and inclination. I don't know. But to the extent that um, we want to understand our predicament as agents trying to lead good lives, I think we can't but draw a line between will and inclination because I think we're are, we're faced with the task of governing ourselves. And I think that these concepts are like as fundamental, say, as concepts of means and ends. Um, it's only because we try to do things that we carve it out a distinction between means and ends. The scientists can say, oh, when this happens, that will happen, or this cause determines that, or these events are governed by this causal law. But the scientist doesn't need to carve out means and ends. Um, maybe the technician does, because the technician is practically oriented. Um, but, but the scientist doesn't need means and ends or a distinction between them. Similarly, for science, we might not need a distinction between will and inclination. But I need it in living my life. Mm -hmm. So means and inclination... Uh, wills and ends, or means and ends, will and inclination. Um, we've also talked a, a bit about Kant so far. There were two sort of random questions about Kant that I wanted to throw in just because I was very curious. It, it sort of serves maybe as a bit of a bridge between what we've been talking about and then rationalism and sentimentalism. But in writing about or teaching about Kant's ethics, you refer to the, the ideal of a kingdom of ends. And I was, I just, I found that phrase sort of curious. And what is the ideal of a kingdom of ends? In Kant. Yeah. Yeah. That's Kant. Kant's phrase. Yeah. Oh, it's Kant's um, phrase. Okay. Yeah. That's Kant's phrase. Yeah. Um, I mean, his ideal, well, and then he gets it from some predecessors as well. But um, he, uh, in Kant's idea, it's, um, uh, it is a, um, community in which um, each person is, um, uh, as he conceives it, a co-legislator um, determining the ground rules of, our, of the community's interaction. So uh, it's like we're all together players in a game making up the rules of the game and agreeing to the rules of the game as we go. Um, but each of us has to respect one another as a participant in this community. When I say game, I don't mean, you know, this is morality. It's very important. But like the, he's envisioning the moral community as one in which um, everyone's an end where that means you can't be used by others. So yes, you have to be treated with dignity and respect. But you also play this special role that he thinks of as co-legislator, where um, uh, you 
in concert with others are um, one of the people who's sort of laying down the laws that will structure this community. So the the moral community is self-governed in contrast to say a moral community that's conceived of as sort of simply responsive to laws that God uh, promulgates. So, you know, a traditional picture would be God lays down the laws, the natural laws or the Christian laws, whatever. And all of us are there as children of God following God's laws. And for Kant, the moral community is autonomous, it's self-governed, but that doesn't mean it's a free-for-all where every individual does whatever the heck they want. It's self-governed in the sense, some kind of ideal of collectively self-governed, but the thought is somehow in collectively governing ourselves, we are each as uh, also protecting and preserving our own autonomy. Okay, and then... So that was the means and ends. Now for will and inclination, but also relating to autonomy. Now, I, I often find myself sort of quoting or referencing Kant, who I don't know well, and I don't know if this is actually what okay. he said. But what I have in mind is that he's or at least what I say is that he believed that whatever our theory of human action is or some final theory we come to we have to preserve free will uh in that theory is there anything correct about that that he I mean, really prized he, free will over deter in a deterministic world or something like that he was a compatibilist so he thought that we can believe in determinism and we can believe that we're free um but and and he held that both can be true. His compatibilism wasn't quite the same as the kind of compatibilism that's often um, sort of presupposed in the 20th and 21st century free will debate, or even like human compatibilism. It's not. Um, it's a kind of. So let me try not to get jargony here. Um, So Kant thought that when you are doing science, you are fully entitled to um, uh, require that every event has a cause. There are no uncaused causes. And when you're explaining things, you are not allowed to appeal to uncaused causes. Not cool. Mm -hmm. um, he felt that when you're acting, um, when you're leading your life and trying to decide uh, what the right thing to do is according to reasons, according to principles, um, uh, you need not think of your freedom is just that is you cannot see yourself as a as a billiard ball on the pool table of life, you know, in that moment when you're deciding what to do. But he didn't think that freedom is therefore just a kind of necessary fiction. He didn't think, oh, well, we're just in fact not free, but we like to think we're free. He thought that um, this thought of freedom is um, sort of a necessary condition of our like 
making any kind of rational decision about what we do at all, and that it's it's entirely legitimate as part of the practical employment of reason. And he had reasons for thinking that it, you're not contradicting anything about theoretical reason if you're um, taking your freedom seriously and taking responsibility for what you do in the course of leading your life. Um, partly because nothing science could tell you could force you then to not take responsibility for what you do and not make choices. Um, um, you, you still have to make choices in life. And so in Kant's view, you still have to employ reason in its practical employment. Theoretical reason builds a mechanistic picture of the world, and that's its job. Practical reason helps you um, decide what to do on the basis of reasons and principles and do it. And that's its job. And we can't get rid of either of those jobs. Um, I, I'm trying to summarize a lot about Kant's compatibilism right here, but that's the gist. No, no, that was very helpful. Quite broadly, as we shift topics, um, we mentioned you mentioned rationalism earlier, but again, what is rationalism in ethics? And then perhaps more importantly, since I don't think I've ever heard this term before, you actually used it also earlier. What is sentimentalism? Yeah, yeah. So so um, rationalism in ethics is a view according to which um, our moral judgments um, track or describe um moral facts uh, that are sort of somehow out there mm. in the world. Okay. Um, so the thought is there's an order of mortar, moral facts, just like there's an order of natural facts. And our job as moral agents is to come up with judgments that are true of those, you know, that are sort of true descriptions of those facts. Um, mm. The sentimentalists, um, uh, argue that, um, at least in their more anti-realist, you know, on the more anti-realist reading, there are some readings that are not as anti-realist, but um, they argue that uh, uh, the idea of there being moral facts out there is either false or nonsensical, um, and uh, and that uh, uh, Morality is not a matter of responding to those moral facts, but that our feelings and certain kinds of feelings and certain patterns of feelings um, are um, expressed in our moral judgments. I mean, there's different versions of, of this, but the idea is sort of that our uh, when we see certain actions, we feel approvals or disapprovals of them. And a certain kind of feeling of approval then gets expressed in our moral judgments. So when you say slavery is wrong, um, I'm putting it in expressivist terms, but I'm, I'm trying to capture a, a, a 18th century sentimentalist named Francis Hutcheson who preceded Hume. Um, when you feel this sort of approval, you're going to call slavery wrong, this sort of disapproval, this sort of, ugh, this sort of yuck feeling. You're going to 
um, call slavery wrong. Hmm. And now they didn't mean that in a deflationary way. So someone like Hutchison thought we have a moral sense. Um, he thought of it as a moral sense analogous to our other five senses, but it's a sense of right and wrong of virtue and vice. And he thought, that's fine. Morality can just be the expression of this sense. But he had sort of rather um, uh, innovative arguments for, for claiming that um, that doesn't amount to a kind of second best. We aren't sacrificing some kind of objectivity that even makes sense um, by saying that morality is just a matter of sense. Because he thought all human beings have this sense. And if it's a sense that all human beings have, and that's operative, and that functions in a way that we can reflectively approve of and say, hey, I'm happy to let this, uh, this, these approvals and disapprovals shape my life and shape my society. And he thought, what more do you need in terms of objectivity? It's, it's, it's a way of, this sense guides a way of being that we're cool with. So mm-hmm. there, there's no further question about like, is it right? Is it wrong? Like, this is a way we want to be. So let's just be this way. And is this process that you sort of, that you described with regard to Hutchison, what you've called as like the method of reflective endorsement. So yes. we look at how we feel. Um, we feel slavery is bad. Thus we endorse that slavery is bad. That's the reflective endorsement. Yeah. So this terminology comes from, I mean, and my interest in the British moralists come from my teacher, Chris Korsgaard, who in her uh, Tanner lectures, the sources of normativity, um, sort of brought this strand of the history of ethics to the fore um, and uh, discussed the dialectic between the rationalists and the sentimentalists. And yes, she associated the sentimentalists with kind of a strategy that she called reflective endorsement, where, um, yeah, you, you sort of survey the system of feeling. And once you look at the whole system of feeling and how it operates, you ask whether you can endorse that whole system. And if you can, um, then in her words, it's then normative or obligatory. Um, so I'm not necessarily, you know, necessarily advocating every feature of her, her reading of this strand of history, but I, I always find it, I found it pretty endlessly fruitful in thinking about ethics to think about how the rationalists and sentimentalists argued with each other. And I teach and constantly go back to the British moralists um, for inspiration and insight. And just to clarify, you said that the sentimentalists or you qualified them as anti-realists and then the rationalists then would be realists because they think that there are, are moral facts out there. Yeah. Okay. And you write that there are maybe two things that characterize their debates about moral obligation. And one is its nature and the other is its source. I'm wondering, Hobbes is the first person you cite and, and or the first person you teach, you start with him and his state of nature. And I'm wondering how this figures into this this question of the nature and source of moral obligation. 
Um, so Hobbes um, tells a certain story about how we come to be morally obligated to do anything. And um, his way of proceeding is sort of to say, well, suppose we had designed morality on purpose to serve a function. What could that function have been? And um, so he and so he comes up with this idea of the state of nature. Not, he's not really doing history. He's not doing actual history. He's just saying um, he's trying to elucidate something about the problem that we might have invented morality to solve. Or if we view morality as if it has a function, what would its function be and what problem would it be solving? And so he thinks it would be solving the problem of how to live together peaceably, given um, certain features of human nature that he thought were just, you know, uh, 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 permanent. Um, so uh, he thought that we tend to, um, uh, you know, we have a, a very strong motive to preserve ourselves and uh, we have various desires that can tend to come in conflict and we live under conditions of scarce resources and he gave a bunch of reasons why he thought that um, without morality in this kind of world where there's no morality but these kinds of people um, life for each of us is going to be solitary poor nasty brutish and short um, and then he thought well uh uh, morality must be an invention to keep us from, you know, leading that kind of life. Um, and in that respect, Hobbes was um, in the interesting, it's a kind of pragmatic um, justification mm -hmm. of morality. Yeah, it doesn't seem rationalist to me. Right. Uh, because right. for rationalists, they're like, I'm not concerned with what's useful. I'm concerned with what's true. Yeah. And so I want to show, they, they would want to show that morality is um, getting it right about the moral facts or about um, uh, the right reason or the law of nature. They put it in different terms, but they, the idea was supposed to be there's moral properties or moral facts or some kind of true moral laws that are just out there. And um, the reason morality is like somehow obligatory for us is just because it's true. It's the truth. Hmm. Who, after Hobbes then, was the the first and most important in this rationalist tradition? Um, well, in the, uh, so Samuel Clark is one of many, but I mean, they all, lots of people hated Hobbes and thought he was, you know, heretical <laughs> and atheist and terrible, but, but so Samuel Clark is, uh, he was a, um, uh, uh, a preacher, a minister who um, had very, high status in um, England, in the Church of England, and um, and he, um, his uh, philosophical works were sermons, um, and so he delivered them from the pulpit, um, and they're, they're pretty moralistic, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but, um, but also he, he sees Hobbes as his opponent, um, and he sees Hobbes as sort of really undermining the, um, 
reality or the importance or obligatoriness of ethics. And so he's trying to tell his flock, you know, uh, no, morality is real. Morality is true. There are moral facts. Um, uh, and they're, they're just kind of true and self-evident. And if, if they're not self-evident to you, that must be because you are either ignorant or, or, or sort of, uh, uh, disobedient, right? Ignorant or, or willfully bad. Um, yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, another figure that you mentioned that I, I didn't know before I saw this mm -hmm. syllabus for your course is Richard Price. And I take it that he's a, a crucial figure in rationalism. And what were, what were his views? And it also looked like they related interestingly to Hume's. Yeah. Um, so Price was a later rationalist, um, uh, late 1700s. Um, he actually influenced the um, American Revolution and the, you know, some of the thinkers who, anim who, you know, were the intellectuals behind the American Revolution. Um, yeah, he, he argued most directly against Hume's philosophy of mind um, and Hume's sort of, um, I mean, Hume's idea is that we get all, Hume following Locke thinks we get all our ideas from experience um, and then reflection on that experience. Um, Price thought that there's some ideas that we don't get from experience, um, including the idea of cause, which Hume tried to show, you know, ended up being sort of nonsensical or at least something we can't really um, vindicate through experience now and in that respect price kind of anticipated Kant because Kant of course also thought that Hume was right we don't get the concept of cause from experience and therefore it has to be vindicated in a different way and that led Kant to his own sort of critical or transcendental idealism um, but it, when it comes to morality um, price thought look, we have ideas of right and wrong that we can't, and virtue and vice, that we can't get from experience. And, um, but, but that's no more mysterious than a whole bunch of other ideas that we can't get from experience, including cause, including substance, including, I think he thought certain mathematical concepts. Um, and he thought, look, unless you're going to let go of all of these other concepts, you shouldn't be particularly suspicious of, um, of concepts of right and wrong and virtue and vice. Um, and he, I mean, kind of similar to Clark, he felt that these concepts um, describe um, objects, but they describe not the surface of objects, but sort of their inner essence. They sort of get at sort of what's sort of fundamental and essential to certain objects that goes beyond sort of mere appearance. Um, so he, he seemed to think we have some kind of faculty of re that he called reason that allows us both to generate new concepts, um, including moral concepts, and apply them to objects in ways that um, maybe a human wouldn't allow. Hmm. Well, the the last figure that I wanted to touch on, and I I talked with Steve Darwall of Yale mm -hmm. a couple of times about this area, but I'm not sure that we got to Jeremy Bentham on this particular area. But so I, I hadn't realized that he was the founder of utilitarianism. And 
what was utilit- utilitarianism for him? Is it the same thing we think of it as being today, roughly, or did it did it change? For Bentham? Yeah. Yeah, I can't speak for contemporary utilitarians or consequentialists necessarily, but I think I think in outline in broad outline, yeah. So, I mean, one thing is that what motivated Bentham was he really thought that British law was shot through with ideology and and um arbitrariness. Um and he he thought it just legislators were like just venting their their own particular yucks and yums and like enshrining it in law and then using it to hurt people so he was actually like very progressive guy who you know ultimately i think you know was in favor of like women's suffrage and um homosexual rights and abolishing animal cruelty and things like that um but uh, he wanted to put um, morality on a scientific foundation. And he felt that to do, th- and by that he meant like natural scientific foundation. Um, and he thought that pleasure is, he had a theory of motivation, basically we're motivated by pleasure and that pretty standard empiricist uh, view. Um, and he thought pleasure is some a mental state that's sort of measurable and we can sort of just objectively quantify it. Um, and then he thought we can aggregate it across different people. And so if you want to figure out, and, then, and he thought, you know, it's not just that pleasure is the only thing that motivates us, it's that whatever the good is, it has to be something that can motivate us. And what is that? That's pleasure. So if there's anything mm-hmm. that we're going to identify with the good, let's identify pleasure, right? And he basically thought, you know, um, uh, in order to know what the right thing is, what the right thing is, is the action that does the most good. And doing the most good means producing the most pleasure. And producing the most pleasure means producing the most pleasure sort of in the aggregate, adding up the pleasures of individuals who are affected by your action. So... It's not entirely clear how to frame this in the debate between rationalists and sentimentalists. Yes. So, so how does this? How did he account for or think about the the nature and source of moral obligation? Right. Right. He wasn't that clear about it. I mean, I think okay. he was a very practically oriented man, and I think he really wanted to. Um, he was policy oriented and he wanted, he was an activist and he wanted to enact policies that would um, reduce uh, unnecessary suffering in the world. Um, And when it came, he was pretty dismissive of both rationalists and sentimentalists. He thought both rationalists and sentimentalists were ultimately just venting their yucks and yums sentimentalists maybe more directly you know um and rationalists by saying oh i see that this is what the moral fact is the moral fact is that you you know shouldn't you know lie or something and 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 bentham's attitude was how do you know that's the moral fact like what if where did you get this special knowledge you're just venting your own yucks and yums so would you be more comfortable categorizing him as a pragmatist in the way that you said Hobbes was? Well, 
I'm not sure where pragmatism ultimately stands with respect to kind of foundations of morality. I mean, um, uh, I, it's true that um, for Hobbes, morality solves a problem. Um, for Bentham, morality solves the problem of how do you produce the most pleasure and the least suffering. Um, so to that extent, yes, he took a kind of pragmatic or sort of technical attitude towards it. But how does he determine that that's the problem that needs to be solved? How does he determine that that producing pleasure is like what we need to be up to? Then the question is, does he think we have reason to produce, produce pleasure? Does he think that somehow there's some fact of the matter that pleasure is the good? Or is it just the idea that we happen to feel good about pleasure and about getting it, right? So you could push Bentham in a more rationalist or in a more sentimentalist direction. I think himself, he'd probably go in the more rationalist direction. I think he probably thought we have good reason to produce pleasure. Okay. And the last question that I have about the rationalist and sentimentalist regards more current uh, meta-ethics. And I think you mentioned in your writing that their debate sort of presages uh, the more modern debate between cognitivists and non-cognitivists in meta-ethics. So first, what are those two views and how do they relate to this earlier debate? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, pretty straightforward. Uh, I mean, I think um, uh, cognitivists, you know, hold that moral judgments have cognitive content by which they mean um, pick out or describe some kind of objects in the world. Um, and non-cognitivists, uh, and that and sort of match the facts or track the facts in a certain way. Um, now, there's all kinds of different variations that I'm totally glossing over here. So this is just sort of broad brush. Um, uh, and then non-cognitivists um, uh, deny that and see. So, you know, prime examples were like um, Charles Stevenson, who who was an emotivist and Hare, Richard Hare was a prescriptivist. And then um uh, there's contemporary expressivists like uh, Blackburn and Gibbard, um, but who who kind of deny that the model of sort of uh, matching the facts is the right model for thinking about moral judgments. And they go in more the direction of moral judgments serve some other function, um, either in uh, they express emotions um, or they um, prescribe what we their ways of trying to get people to do things um, or uh, I mean Gibbard has more more sort of complicated view of what they express they um, express our own commitment to a certain system of norms um, so, it, I mean, that's put in terms of kind of the debate about how to analyze the meaning of moral judgments, whereas the earlier debate was really about what is the foundation of morality? Why is it that I have to do anything at all? Whereas more in the 20th century, it takes this slightly ling linguistic turn um, 
are moral judgments meaningful? Are they nonsense? Do they pick out? Is there anything they pick out actually, or are they just gibberish? What are they? Okay. Well, this has all been great. I have one last thread that I just couldn't help but ask about. And it's that I was really surprised to see that you taught Ayn Rand in your <laughs> in your introduction to ethics class. And yeah. sort of like with Freud, I mean, I guess to be honest, I didn't know that any professional analytic philosophers thought of her as a philosopher at all. No offense if you are a fan of her because no, I don't no, no, know. I'm not a fan of hers. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't know her work in that capacity at all. So I well, I guess then that begs the question. Um why do you teach Ayn Rand? How yes. do you teach Ayn Rand? What yeah. was her relationship yeah. to ethics? Yeah. And I mean why is I she the first I thing you teach? Whole, I don't give her a whole lot of airtime, but but I because uh, I start with egoism, because I think that's something students can relate to and get emotional about, you know, so, so okay. um, she, I start with kind of the bad girl. Is that girl. her view, egoism? Yeah, um, I mean, she calls it objectivism, and it has been um, um, super, super influential in American culture informing in particular um, libertarian, sort of really strongly libertarian um, uh, politicians um, and intellectuals who think basically that we ought to have a very, very, very small government and, um, and who kind of um, have a, a huge amount of faith in the free market, um, on, in an unregulated free market. So it's associated with a political position that is not my political position, not one I advocate. Um, however, I just grabbed, um, I, I, long ago when I was still teaching at Stanford, I, I, I found some Ayn Rand excerpted in an anthology, an ethics anthology, and tried teaching it and found it worked well. It's an excerpt from Atlas Shrugged in which the main character is sort of propounding his philosophy, but it's it basically criticizing all of traditional morality, saying all of traditional morality tells you to be altruistic and being altruistic is really just being a sucker. And it's also not your natural purpose. Your natural purpose isn't to be altruistic. So there's this vague appeal to like natural law or something. And, and then it tries to argue that your natural purpose is just to preserve yourself and kind of screw everybody else. <laughs> so, um, so I start out with this uh, 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 this excerpt from Atlas Shrug, and it just usually gets them kind of excited right at the beginning of the term. <laughs> so because they're so it. opposed to it, some are and some aren't. But at least it's something I think they can understand. Is like. Uh, uh, Oh, here's a pretty simple picture. Morality is altruism, and then there, but then there's this heterodox view that no, what you really ought to be is an egoist. Like, is a kind of language that they can start from in starting mm -hmm. to think about ethics. And we can look at you know both these positions, and is this over overly simplistic? And what sort of weird human nature argument is she making to try to show that that we ought to be egoistic? And I don't get 
When I'm teaching, I very, very much try not to moralize. I try not to preach. I try not to be a moralist. So you started out this interview by saying, you know, you're afraid <laughs> studying morality means like being in church, right? And I think, you know, it's very important as a teacher of moral philosophy not to be make students feel like they're in church being preached at. You know, I see myself as more like a yoga instructor trying to teach people to be like, you know, how yoga instructor tries to take you however flexible you are and try to urge you to be like a little more flexible. Well, I try to take students as reflective as they may happen to be, and they may come in really unreflective or come in like very reflective. And I want to take them a couple further steps so that they can be a little more reflective about morality than they were when they came in. Um, mm -hmm. But it's not my job to preach and tell them what's the right thing to think. That's not my job. Well, the the last thing I will ask is, are there any crucial flaws in her formulation of egoism that make her particularly easy for contemporary moral philosophers to just shut down, which is why she doesn't get much airtime or... Um, <laughs> why she's not really thought of as a, a serious philosopher? Well, I mean, she doesn't develop a system. She's not as thorough and systematic as we usually expect in, uh, in you know, I mean, she's not, she's not going to stand alongside, you know, I've got Kant and Aristotle and Bentham and, and, contemporary philosophers like Rawls and Korsgaard and Frankfurt. And yeah, you know, I mean, she's not going to stand alongside them in terms of systematicity and pushing questions really far. There are a lot of ambiguities that need to be resolved. So for example, there's a very, you can read her in a very domesticated way, according to which um, she doesn't really think it's like a sink or swim world. She just thinks that, um, uh, if we all focus on our own benefit, then everyone benefits. So that's not really egoism. Like if you think that it's important that everyone benefits, but the best way to do that is for each person to focus on their own good, then you're not really an egoist. You're just someone who thinks like as a heuristic, it's good to kind of think about your own good and not try to mess with other people's business, right? Mm -hmm. um, but another way to read her um, uh, she's saying, look, what matters is that you succeed and survive and screw everyone else. If, if, if it doesn't matter if everyone benefits or not. Um, so, I mean, there's some deep ambiguities, like, of course there's ambiguities in any philosopher, but she, you know, she wrote in a, she wrote novels and, uh, they weren't really good particularly good novels, you know, um, and, and I think she mostly had the soul of an activist. She knew a little philosophy, um, but she, you know, she came from communist, from, from Russia. She had, her family had, um, sort of gone through the Bolshevik Re revolution. They, it had been extremely traumatic. So she had very strong feelings about communism and, um, uh, very anti-collectivist feelings. And she came here and, you know, she she had an agenda and she wanted to change the world. Um, I don't think she ultimately had the soul of a philosopher. She was an activist. She wanted to change the world. Well, on that note, 
Thank you so much for, for joining me and having this conversation. I really learned a lot. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson East, please do so.